You're listening to the 2022 Nelson Arts Festival, Puka Puka Talks. This session, Savage Domesticity, features Catherine Chigi in conversation with Elizabeth Knox. Oh, dazzling light time. Yeah. Morena, I'm completely thrilled and delighted to be here with um, doing this session with Catherine. I, um, I actually, when I was reading this book uh, in what well, would have been a manuscript, not even in proof, like some time ago because, um, because they wanted me to blurb it. And so I said, yep, I'll read it, that's fine. And there was probably silence from my corner for ages, and Fergus might have sat there getting nervous, but the silence was profound absorption. Though I'm sure that the silence was occasionally broken by laughter, because this, this book is, yeah, it's an incredible book. Um, I'm talking about both books today, the latest one and the, um, the uh, recent and highly successful Remote Sympathy. Um, Remote Sympathy was shortlisted for the Dublin Literary Award and longlisted for the Women's Writing Prize in England. And that's, you know, that's all Ireland and England. I've had to make that distinction. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that's, that, that was wonderful. And it's, it's also an astonishing book in a completely different way. So I'm going to cleverly try to see some of my questions, and you can judge whether I managed to actually achieve my clever seeking. Okay, so, um, I'm going to tell you a bit about the book, about the X-Man's Carnival. Uh, the one thing I liked about it, the thing that I, that I admire in many works of art, or not as many as I think there should be, is that the mixed tone, that it does, that it's a book of all sows, that it has the lyricism of the magpie narrator's view of life and that magpie family and, and clan, how they tell their stories. So it has a mythical element. It has landscapes and interiors through the magpie's point of view. Um, he's small in the house, but he's large in the world because he can get up over it like a god on his wings. Um, and that kind of gives a heroic scale to things, particularly the farm, the central otaku landscape. It's got that mythic element, but it's also got a very up-to-the-minute sense of, of the contemporary world, of social media in our lives and, um, and monetizing our online lives, even the... the, the the, the way that that dominates all our activities. Um, it's witty, it's satirical, but it's also um, a book about domestic violence and it takes a very hard look at domestic violence. It's kind of a rural gothic, New Zealand rural gothic, and... Um, and it, it, just, it just goes through all the kinds of things it's doing with this sort of swooping certainty, very like, very like Tama. So um, 
when you when you started this book and you well when you were thinking of this book, you made the choice to tell the story through a magpie. Can you tell us about Tama and what the constraints and the um, the, di the disciplines, the constraints, and the freedoms you got from choosing to tell the story through him. Oh, thanks, Elizabeth, for that lovely introduction. And um, good morning, everyone. It's so lovely to be back here in person. I Zoomed in last year, so it's really nice um, to be back here in the flesh. Um, I do have to start with an apology. Um, Tama is unable to be here this morning. Um, he had made some quite specific demands to Kerry Sunderland, um, the, the director. Uh, one of them being that he wanted a bath full of Perrier. He likes the feel of the bubbles through his feathers. Um, he wasn't happy with um, the way that those demands were answered. And um, unfortunately, he flounced off in a huff. Um, and was last seen down at the beach carousing with some rather unsavoury seagulls. So, um, yeah, I, I can only apologise. <laughs> um, the constraints of writing from a magpie's point of view. I mean, I will say that he did take over me. He did possess me. He feels very real to me. He still feels very real to me, um, you know, long after the last word of the book has been written. Um, and I knew that I would be setting myself up for some difficulties in um, writing from the point of view of an animal who is not of our world. Um, just in terms of the language that he uses. So, you know, I couldn't have him comparing um, someone's eyes to an object in the human world that he's never seen. So especially early on in the book, a lot of the time he's, when he makes those sorts of comparisons, he's using things that are of his world. So he talks about Rob, who is the farmer, having riverstone eyes, or he talks about the yellow house that Rob and Marnie live in as being yoke yellow. Um, so those were things that I tried to um, keep in mind when I was developing his voice. And then as the novel progresses and, and he takes up residence um, in the human world and he watches a lot of television um, and is exposed to a lot of social media and listens to the radio, gradually he takes on human language and can begin to use um, some of that language in his voice as well. Um, but it is a book of um, ventriloquism, and I loved playing with that idea of um, inhabiting the voice of a bird, but also thinking about um, language and mimicry and how we acquire language and how we say what we mean or, or don't say what we mean and how we often misunderstand what other people are saying because Tama, you know, will often parrot something that he hears without... Um, kind of true knowledge of what that means, or, or perhaps he does understand and is, and is kind of poking fun, particularly at Rob the farmer. Um, so there's one scene in the book that I absolutely loved writing where um, Tama has become this internet sensation and the plan is to um, create some Tama merchandise to kind of 
capitalise on his success. And one of the things that is going to be manufactured is a talking Tama plush toy. And so they have to have this recording session where they record Tama saying certain things that they will then use for the voice of the toy. And Tama's catchphrase online um, has become don't you dare because Marnie, his owner, has posted this clip of him online saying don't you dare, don't you dare to rob the um, increasingly frustrated farmer who has discovered Tama in the marital bed and who says to Marnie on, on camera, um, get him out of here and don't you dare let him come back. And Tama just keeps parroting, don't you dare, don't you dare, as he kind of flits away out of their reach um, so they can't get him out of the bed. Um, and so his followers online have seized on this phrase, don't you dare. So, so that really has to be part of the, the plush toy. And so when they're recording, um, Tama refuses to cooperate and won't say, don't you dare. So they have to, in the end, get Rob to say, don't you dare, in Tama's voice. So in that scene, I just, it still makes me laugh, possibly, you know, possibly tragic that I'm kind of <laughs> laugh, laughing at my own joke. It's never a good look, is it? But so, in that, you know, in writing that scene, it's me, the author, um, mimicking... Wait, let me get this right. It's me, the author, mimicking a bird, mimicking Rob, mimicking a bird. Uh, yeah, there's, there's all these layers um, in that particular scene that I really loved um, messing around with. And, and the, that idea of um, copying someone's voice and, and, and annoying them by copying their voice was very much um, central to the relationship between Rob and Tama because Rob um, is, you know, he's a farmer who thinks mag magpies are pests and should be shot, and yet here they have one living with them and he has to put up with him because Tama may be the thing that earns them enough money to save his farm. And um, I, I kind of think of Tama as being this annoying presence in Rob's life, like that kid in the playground who decides to start copying you and you cannot get them to stop. That's, yep. yeah, Tama is that stone in the shoe for Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before, before I get you to do a reading, because I think a reading will be good here, I'll just ask you this. this um, with, the, with the mimicking, um, one of the things that Tama ends up doing, because, because Rob possibly, but maybe Marnie, loves watching police procedurals, so they watch a lot of cop shows. So uh, Tama picks up all that kind of language which comes, becomes useful um, for his describing situations, but it actually just becomes useful in terms of how the plot, plot unfolds. That, that sense that you, you hover on the edge of, of not, we can't be sure how much Tama knows about what, what he's doing, that he gets an effect from what he sees, particularly on his, his adversary, because Rob pretty much is his adversary in lots of ways. He, he could have decided to say certain things because they get the right effect if he wants to. But then, on the other hand, yeah, he's, there's, there's, there's a bit more going on. And I was interested in that, the fact that you were willing to kind of depart from strict realism um, because the character... The, the magpie demands it. We're in. We're seeing the world through his eyes. So he's a he's a he's a big imagined magpie, part of a big imagined magpie culture. Which, yeah. 
yeah, we only see the world um, through his eyes. And he, and he does have um, the voice that the humans hear, which is parroting what he's heard, often at inappropriate and, and <laughs> unsuitable times. Um, but he also has this inner voice, which is much more eloquent and poetic, and that's him kind of thinking in his own magpie tongue, um, everything in the book that's not in between quotation marks is his inner magpie voice. And he has conversations with his sister too and with his father in their magpie tongue. And there are some quite complicated scenes where both humans and magpies are present and Tama is straddling both worlds and, and kind of translating for his sister um, who doesn't understand human language. Um, yeah, it is um, a step away from strict reality in that um, magpies are incredible mimics and they, and they will learn to speak if they're exposed to human speech. Um, but Tama is a very, um, a very good student of, of, of language and he picks things up like that, which is probably not entirely realistic. It's possible, but you know, in the real, in the real world, a, a magpie would have to hear some things um, you know, several times over before they start to say it. But, but Tama is a very intelligent Yes, bird. Tama's a genius among Tama, magpies. Tama yes. is a genius. Um, and, oh, I just lost the thread of what I was going to say about... No, it's gone. You could do your reading now. I could though, do my reading. Let's, yeah. hear from, let's hear from Tama. Okay. Um, so I thought I would read you a little bit um, from quite near the start of the book um, because it uses some of that language like the yoke yellow house. Um, and it's at a moment when um, Marnie has rescued Tama as a, a blind naked chick who's fallen out of the nest and she's brought him home. But after a few months of living with them, um, Rob has insisted we cannot keep this thing. It is so loud, it is so annoying. Take it back to the wild. And so Marnie has taken Tama back to the wild and so he's kind of, He's seen two worlds, um, and he is back with his family, but he's longing for Marnie. Um, Marnie is the one who he thinks of as his mother. Um, when his eyes opened, the first thing he saw was Marnie's hand, uh, so her white hand and her black hair, and he has bonded with Marnie as his mother. He, he thought that her hand was his mother. Um, and so in this scene... Um, He's, he's with his sister, um, and he's at the same time longing to be back in the, in the human world. And he does um, parrot a, a human expression um, in this <laughs> scene. So see, if you can, see if you can figure out which one um, in particular that is that he might have picked up from Rob. And I belonged and did not belong, and I was bird and not bird. I learned how the wild worked, where to take shelter, and what voice the adults used when another flock tried to invade. I learned to behave. I learned my place. I learned to leap octaves and to sing two notes at once. Certainly, I could talk to my bird family. The sounds came so naturally I barely had to think, and if I tried to form human words, they stuck somewhere inside me like sad memories. My sister taught me to land on a branch or a fence post or even a single wire without losing my footing. 
I lay with her in a sun trance, staring at nothing, beak open, head twisted and feathers spread to let the heat touch my skin. She showed me the shape of the harrier hawk high against the blue and how to tell berries from poison, how to smash open a snail, how to balance on the back of a sheep, claws hooked in the wool, scanning the ground for cicadas and moths, and how to rub the sting from a wasp so it was safe to eat. I flew for food, spying mice and lizards from the air, but I flew for the joy of it too, for the feel of every feather stroked flat. And I saw that black is not just black, but green-black, purple-black, blue-black. My father took me down to where the cherry trees grew and explained that the birds who stared with shining eyes from the branches were dummy birds, not real, a trick to scare us. He showed me how to strip the flesh from the cherry stones, but I must never go near the cages, no matter the succulent bait inside, because every cage was a trap. I must never go near the reeking pit on the hill either, not unless I wanted to see all the things the humans poisoned and shot and killed and threw away to rot. Even their own dogs, he said, if they wouldn't work. I could feel him watching me as we flew past the yoke yellow house, and I did not look at the place. I did not slow the beat of my wings to glimpse Marnie through the windows, nor try to make the sound that was her name. My sister and I played games, fetching a eucalyptus leaf or a poplar leaf and passing it back and forth. You keep it. No, I don't want it. You keep it. We flew up past the pines to where there were no trees, and we hid from each other behind the matagori bushes and the fluttery tufts of tussock and the rocks that held the heat, picked our way around the patches of spear grass with their knife-edged leaves and their savage flowers. We pulled on each other's wings and tails, bumped breasts, pretended to fight, and when our father came to scold us, we rolled on our backs and showed him our soft bellies. My sister taught me to listen for grubs in the paddocks too, and I waited for a bit of peace and bloody quiet, then tilted my head and tried to follow their swish and gnaw. And yes, there it was, down deep, biting at the roots of the grass, and I took one slow step and then another until a grub was right underneath me, and then I stabbed for it. And when one of my uncles died, death by power line, I went to the vigil with everyone else and cawed and keened for him and nudged at his cold wing. And yet, my father kept his eye on me, waiting for me to betray myself. Every day he told me another bad story about humans. They wrung our necks, they ran us down, they shot us, they poisoned us. Doesn't that bother you, he said. Yes, father, I said. I don't think it bothers you. I don't think you believe me. I believe you, Father. You still reek of her. And I did not perch with the other birds high in the pines. I took my place on a scraggy lower branch that offered little shelter. But below the trees, down at the foot of the hill, I could see the yoke yellow house and hear the scree, scree, scree of the clothesline as it turned in the wind, all the dresses and shirts alive. <laughs> Thank you, just lovely. Oh, yes. Yeah, so um, this kind of leads me to talk a bit about the toxic masculinity because um, Tama's father means well, but he's he's a kind of a particular 
kind of authority figure. He's the silent displeasure male, the, the one who will pretend you don't exist if you displease them. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot in this book that seems to me be, to be specifically about possibly a, a totally New Zealand brand of <laughs> the, the man who's ever a man of straw but needs to be a, a, a man of authority, like Rob the farmer or, or the true authoritarian figure of Thomas Barber, who's also quite um, quite forbidding and, and, well, you don't, you're hard to like. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yes, you've got, you've got Rob, and Rob needs to feel in charge of things. And then Tama comes along, and, and then this phenomenon happens of, of the, the internet celebrity, and Rob gets, see, well, sees Marnie establishing herself through this, and um, yeah, so. Yeah, and he's not happy about that. I mean, Rob is, is a fairly unhappy, disappointed, and angry man in general, and, and he's the son of a disappointed and angry man, and they are trying to farm in this you know, deeply inhospitable environment, and he's kind of inherited various decisions that his own father made about the kind of sheep they should run and what they should do with the land that have not proved um, successful. And yet, you know, their next door neighbours who live just down the hill from them and on part of the land that was carved up and sold um, by his father to try and save the farm, um, their neighbours who are Marnie's sister and her husband have established a cherry orchard there and they're very successful. And, you know, they're about to branch into peacherines and, you know, all these, all these kind of um, new crops that Rob sees as a threat to his way of life and what he's always known. And he's very stuck in his ways and is kind of very stubbornly refusing to move with the times and to understand that if he wants his farm um, to be saved, he needs to change what he's doing. He needs to change his behaviour. And he needs to change his behaviour in terms of his marriage as well. Um, but he is unable to do that. Um, so, you know, you mentioned, I remember the thing I was going to say. It was about the TV shows, um, the, the US cop shows that Rob watches um, all the time and that Tama kind of picks up <laughs> this particular US cop language from, like every so often he'll come out with, I will take you down, motherfucker, <laughs> um, at inappropriate times. So, or appropriate. Or appropriate, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so there is a chance to, to play for laughs in the book, but there's something darker going on with that too, and it is related to, to that thread of toxic masculinity in that every show features um, a, a young, attractive, naked, dead woman. And Rob doesn't quite see that there's a connection between what he's watching on the screen and what is happening with the violence um, in his home um, with Marnie. And Tama sees that and doesn't kind of comment on it analytically, but reports to us that that is that that is happening, so we can kind of connect those dots. Um, and you know, Rob is is yeah faced with this 
this new male in the house in the form of Tama, um, who, who obviously doesn't have Rob's physical strength. You know, Rob is a champion axeman. Um, he, he is all muscle. Um, and Tama can't possibly compete with that physically, but he can compete with him intellectually. Magpies yep. are very, very clever. And, um, and so that's how Tama takes him on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, there's a, there's a, well, actually, there's two threads of suspense running through the book. The, the, the long thread of the threat of Rob's violence is just always present in the book and, you know, has kind of rises and falls. And then inside that, there's actually a little thriller plot involving some hapless um, animal activists who decide that Tama needs rescuing, but I won't spoil that for you, but it really is both high comedy and satire and at the same time really thrillery. Um, but, but yeah, I was, I was, yeah, the, so you, you're good at suspense. You're very good at suspense. So how, do, how does that, how do you, how does it come to you? Do you feel that you build it or that it just kind of flows I'm, I'm always interested in questions about suspense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it involves a lot of post-it notes on my study wall. Yep. <laughs> and, and a lot of kind of structural sketching out of what needs to happen when. And I guess I knew, um, you know, really early on that the event, the annual event that is the Axeman's Carnival when Rob is going to um, defend his title of the Golden Axe. Um, he wants to win 10 Golden Axes in a row. He's got nine. This is the year that he is going to win his 10th come hell or high water. Um, and so, yeah, we do have these scenes of him training throughout the book out there with his axe or sharpening the axe. And I do intend those to build the yep. suspense. And I, and I always intended that the Axeman's Carnival event would be the climactic day in the book, and that that would come quite late. Um, and and yeah, I guess I enjoyed ratcheting up the tension, and it felt it, it's not that it felt easy to do, but it felt natural to do when you have that scenario of the outsider or the imposter coming to live in the marital home. It did feel like that was a situation that was ripe for exploiting. Um, every bit of tension um, possible and that Rob would become angrier and angrier and angrier at the presence of this bird, who they can sound as loud as a jackhammer. They are very, very loud. Um, but it's not just the sound of Tama, it's the fact that he is replacing Rob in Marnie's affections. You know, Tama is in love with Marnie and really Marnie is in love with Tama um, and then there's also the social media um, intrusion into their lives too, which again winds Rob up more and more and more so that you're not sure when he's going to snap and really lose it about um, the, the cameras that are now in their house live streaming Tama's antics to yeah. the world. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's an, it's an, it is an invasion of privacy. It is, But it's yeah. also um, Rob relies so much on 
on the few people whose behaviour he can control and reflecting the ideal Rob back at him and the, and the, and the wider world isn't going to do that. So yeah. as soon as the cameras are there, um, the man of straw is a bit in trouble, really. He's really in trouble because um, he suddenly cannot just um, let rip with the kind of behaviour that he has been letting rip. Um, he... And he does change, in Tama's eyes, he does change when the cameras are then in the living room. Um, so they spread from being just in Tama's nursery to being elsewhere in the house too. Um, and ostensibly Rob is new Rob, as Tama calls him. And, and he, you know, he is affectionate towards Tama and he gets Tama little, little treats. He brings him dried apricots to eat and it seems as if he's changed. But has he? Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think Tama believes it. Um, so you do get that really good sense of um, of of the woman in an abusive relationship wa walking on eggshells. That yeah. that she has high, terrible fears and high hopes of the axeman, um, the the chopping wood chopping competition. Yeah, yeah. So you know, a lot is riding on Rob winning that tenth golden axe. Rob, but definitely also for Marnie as well, because she understands that if he doesn't win, he is going to be full of rage. Yeah, with an axe. With an axe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so she knows that um, she has to support him um, in his training. She has to kind of bolster his ego to allow him to go and compete and win um, on that day. And yeah, she is walking on eggshells, and 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 it is a story of domestic violence. But it's a story of domestic violence told through the eyes of a magpie who doesn't really, at first, understand what that is, what is going on in the human world. Um, and gradually, you know, he he then does become aware that actually what's happening is not okay. Um, but physically, he can't do anything about it. And for Marnie, she doesn't leave. And you know, people often will wonder about women in those situations. Why don't they leave? Why don't they just walk out the door? And usually the answer is quite complicated and is related to um, your financial position or related to family. Yeah, she's got her sister living in the got, next door. So. Yeah, or because the woman is terrified that, yeah. the, that the abusive partner will pursue them and that things will be even worse. Um, and for Marnie, one of the reasons that she can't, can't leave is because of Tama. She she can't take Tama with her, and she loves him. You know he is yep. he is her surrogate child, and she can't leave him. Um, I saw. I think I'll just draw a um, parallel here to with the with the man of straw business that that um, in remote sympathy. Um, there is also a man of straw. I think Dietrich Hahn is in many ways. Um, you know, he's an he's an opportunist. He's he's ambitious, and 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 he has this great ability to ignore everything like everybody else in the, <laughs> in the book. Um, uh, some of you will have read the book, but it's it's set in book and build, and uh, is is well, it's the story of a of a. Uh, uh, official in the camp, a high-up official in the camp, of, of the SS officers and their families, and particularly of this one man, Dietrich Hahn, and his wife, Greta, who's ill, 
and of the Jewish doctor who is a prisoner in the camp who has invented a machine that um, Dietrich Hahn hopes will cure his wife because he's desperate for a cure. But um, he's also a person who is sort of won't look at... He loves his wife, but he won't let her be her. Yeah, and, and he won't let her be ill. And he makes decisions for her. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so, yeah, he's massively in denial about the fact that his wife has been diagnosed with what looks to be terminal cancer. Um, he does kind of come to this impossible agreement with um, Leonard, who's a prisoner in the camp who has years earlier invented this machine that operates via electrotherapy and, and the, the pulses from this machine can supposedly cure cancer. And so he asks him to rebuild his machine and, and treat his wife. And he says, you know, if you save my wife, then I will save you and your family. And Leonard has decided by that point that the machine doesn't work. So he's in this impossible situation where he needs to convince a man like Dietrich that it does work and that he can save his wife and that, you know, he will endeavour to keep her alive until the end of the war so to save his own skin and his family's. Um, but Dietrich is, um, you know, another angry, disappointed man. Maybe I specialise in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he, while he is very powerful in terms of the world of the camp, the world of Buchenwald, um, He's not the commandant. He's not exactly where he wanted to be in life, and he keeps comparing himself to his old school friend who has risen through the ranks of the Gestapo and is doing very well for himself, thank you very much. And that kind of um, insecurity was the thing that allowed me to um, kind of make him more three-dimensional than a lot of Nazi figures are often in literature. They're often very kind of cardboard cutout, I think. So I gave him some chinks in his armour. But in terms of how he relates to his wife, Greta, he doesn't even tell her what her illness is. And that's not unusual, in fact, for, um, the, for times. the times. Yep. For the times. Is for someone with cancer, particularly a woman with cancer, not to be told that this is what you have. So her male doctor knows, her husband knows, but she doesn't know. She begins to suspect. But he uses, you know, again, I use, I use language to um, kind of illustrate that relationship and, and the power dynamic within that relationship and the way that he talks to Greta um, about her illness. And he talks about it in a way that gives her some information, but that also conceals the truth. So he says, you've got a cyst. It's just a cyst. You'll have, you know, a small operation to remove the cyst, and then you'll... And then you'll be able to have... We'll be able to have more children. Then we'll be yep. able to have more children. So he takes it upon himself to make the decision that she will not have radiotherapy because, as he says to his doctor, or he clarifies with his doctor, that would affect her fertility. They only have one child and he wants to produce a, a family of um, national socialists, uh, um, yeah. a, a big brood of them. So, you know, I find his behaviour quite shocking, but the way that he describes it is all very 
kind of measured and self-justifying. Yeah. Because we hear from him through his through his voice the way that we hear from Tama through Tama's yes, voice. Yes, you, you hear from um, Dietrich when he's being interviewed while he's in prison in the 50s. Um, That's after he's been released. Yeah. 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 Oh, yes. So, just a, just so he's, he's, he's all full of all sort of, you know, the... The the uh, my hard life with the practical considerations of running a camp. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so false. Like it's a total it's exercise in self justification. Yeah, yeah. But so are the other characters. So the other yes. characters speak in first person as well. Greta, his wife, Leonard, the doctor, and also the one thousand citizens of Weimar, the city at the at, yep. at the foot of the hill where the camp is, and they are all putting down the truth as they see it. Um, and they're all culpable to various yeah. degrees. Yeah, their truth is their truth. Their kind of lives through that period is totally relied on ignoring so many things. You yeah, know, it's like an um, one one other parallel with the Xmas Carnival with remote sympathy is that you've got um, you've in effect got a, a bit of a Greek chorus going on in both books. That I was thinking, you must love these Greek choruses. The <laughs> citizens of Weimar are the Greek chorus and remote sympathy, and, and there's the Tama's internet followers. Yes. And and so you, tell me why you like, I mean, I love Greek choruses and books, <laughs> so, but, you, but you're seem to be a past master. I love them too, and I, it's not something that I consciously thought about, is that, oh, I must do that again. But it, mm. it just happened, and I guess I did it in The Wish Child too, my earlier book set in Nazi Germany, and, and I had these two housewives who are kind of twittering away on, on the sidelines to each other. Um, in Remote Sympathy, I read about um, these 1,000 citizens of Weimar, and it, it was one of those moments of research where you just go, oh, of course, they belong in the book. Something slots into place that should always have been there. And so when um, the camp was liberated by the Americans towards the end of World War II, um, General Patton was so horrified by what he found there on the doorstep of the beautiful um, little town of Weimar that he ordered 1,000 citizens of Weimar to be marched up the hill and to tour the camp um, and to see exactly what had been going on in their neighbourhood for years. Um, so reading about that, um, I, you know, I couldn't not use them in the book. I had to use that collective voice to talk about um, knowing and not knowing. Um, you know, willful ignorance, knowing that on certain days when the wind blows in a certain direction, don't hang your washing out on the line because it will end up covered in ashes and your apples from your apple tree in your garden will taste like ashes. Um, but insisting all the while that they didn't know what was going on. Um, and the followers in, um, in the Axemen's Carnival are similarly unfeeling often. Um, so they want a piece of Tama. They want to um, kind of possess him in that way that we do with the latest internet craze, like whether it's Grumpy Cat or <laughs> whoever the latest meme is. Uh, we feel some kind of strange ownership around that creature. And I'm interested in thinking about the way that an animal online can be really entertaining. Um, and can kind of evoke um, feelings of adoration, but can also be very exploited, and and we need to be mindful of crossing that line into, um, you know, dressing an, an animal up for laughs when the animal is in fact 
not enjoying it at all no, or, or, or even suffering. <laughs> yeah. 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 I have dressed cats for the internet myself. Yeah, I, I always <laughs> think, goodness gracious, what biddable cats those cats must be. Because one of them, one of our cats is biddable. Ah, yep. J- Jiffy. Yeah. 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 Jiffy. I should mention that Jiffy, Jiffy has, has another book. Jiffy out. has a second book a out. A second book, yeah. which is... Which is Jiffy's Greatest Hits. So a book for children, Jiffy is is a person and a character. He's Well, we've got a talking bird and we've got a singing cat. So, um, yeah. yeah. Kind of. Yeah. We, do we want a singing cat? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Jiffy's owners don't want a singing cat. But the, his greatest hits are the songs that he sings through the night at full volume that keep his owners away. It's a true story. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I always think about Lindley Dodd and Slinky Belinky, and <laughs> you think, mm, yeah, someone knew someone. Um, before I pass over for some audience questions, I've, I've got a, I've got a one thing that I was really interested in is how you found your magpie mythology, um, where it comes from. You know, I know some of it's imagined or reinterpreted, but actually some of it is is based on some s- stories of of magpies. Yeah. So there are all kinds of superstitions and stories um, around magpies. You know, that the the magpies um, um, were the only bird who, um, gosh, I'm forgetting it now. Who, who didn't, didn't, we, didn't sing. Who did, didn't sing, didn't mourn at the crucifixion. Um, so, you know, magpies get quite a bad um, rap. Magpies refuse to um, board the ark or... You know, magpies um, carry a drop of the devil's blood on their tongues. Um, so I researched that and kind of wove that into what Tama thinks of as bad stories that people tell about magpies. But I also um, wove in a really beautiful creation story about the Australian magpie, who is different from the European magpie. And um, I read about the story and then um, talked to um, an organisation called the Mudjar Aboriginal Corporation in um, in Australia and a really lovely woman there um, looked at my retelling of that story and, and gave me her blessing to use it. And so that felt really special that I could use this story, which is really about the cleverness of magpies. It's about um, at the beginning of the world, um, everyone lived in darkness and the sky was very close to the earth so you couldn't stand upright and it was okay for the snakes and for animals that slithered along on their bellies but everyone else had to crouch over um, because of the sky. And so the magpies were very clever and they got a very long stick and together they propped up the sky um, and it still wasn't quite high enough, so they climbed onto rocks, and then they climbed, climbed up hills, and then they climbed up to the top of the highest mountain and to prop the sky up. And at that point, um, the the darkness kind of broke into fragments and formed clouds and skittered away, and the light flooded in, and that was the first dawn. Um, so a really beautiful story, but also a story about magpies' intelligence and magpies knowing um, what to do when no one else does. Um, and so I, I knew that that was really important to the themes of the book. Um, so that story is told by Tama's mother, who exists um, only as a ghost 
in the book. Tama's mother and his brothers, who have also died... Um, death by car. Death by car. Um, exist only as ghosts made of feathers and bones, and they turn up, as, as I guess, you know, another kind of Greek chorus, they turn up at certain, at certain times in the book. D d sort of um, times of sort of isolation and, and sort of emotional, you know, when Tama's yeah. on emotionally on a back foot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they turn up to to advise him to leave the human world. You know, they they urge him to leave it because it's dangerous. Um, you know, that's what killed them. But um, but he won't. He's too invested in it by now. Yeah, too much in love. Um, one thing that I w I w last question, and then and then people can ask some questions. Um, I was really interested in in the fact that Tamara's basically is, is it someone who's lost his culture? And I kept thinking, in some ways, this is an allegory of colonisation. And whether you were aware of that and, and kind of like, I am going with it, or whether it just sort of crept in by the sort of necessity of the story? Yeah, I think a bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> it did creep in, and, and I became aware of it. Yeah. Um, you know, he is an outsider. He's an Australian <laughs> living in New Zealand, and he's also obviously an outsider um, in the human world and he does he does miss his family he misses his blood family and his, he misses his own natural speech he does it, he misses it and he has also begun to lose it um, because he's not with his flock and he's not speaking it all the time so there are these moments when he tries to speak in his own tongue again he can't quite get the words right get the sounds right um, and he, do, he, he does love Marnie and he wants to stay in that world, but he does also feel the pull of the wild. You know, the book is, is, is really interested in those tensions between the domestic and the wild or, um, you know, the, the, the tame and the savage. And, um, his father has basically shut him out and, said you've you've betrayed us you've left us behind you've made your choice you can't come back you can never come back and that and, and Tama carries that as a real loss um, and there is a point later in the book where he um, needs to decide which direction am I flying in am I flying up to the pines where my flock lives or am I flying to the oak yellow house um, and you can see which which way he goes yeah so um, I'm going to open it up to the floor if anyone has some questions for Catherine. There, there is a roving mic. Yep. Okay, thank you very much. Um, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I follow a Facebook page about um, uh, from people who um, have a relationship with a, a wild magpie in their garden or the house. And, um, and of course, we've all heard the amazing experiments with corvids of uh, problem-solving things. And then there's amazing books like Penguin Bloom, which I... And I just wondered if you were inspired by those, you know, where animals seem to be, or magpies in particular, really trying to make um, understand us as much as mm. perhaps more, even more than we try to understand them. I mean, there is so much amazing footage of magpies interacting with humans on YouTube, and I spent hours looking at it. Yeah, I did. Um, I was aware of Penguin Bloom, which was kind of just coming out at the time when I was um, writing it, but I deliberately stayed away from that because I didn't want to kind of do anything the same. Um, but I definitely looked at lots of footage of um, 
magpies hanging upside down from rotary clotheslines and being swung around <laughs> to have a ride, magpies playing with pegs or, you know, rolling onto their backs to be scratched on their bellies. They're incredibly engaged birds when they want to be. Um, and that was absolutely fascinating. And magpies also lying in, in their sun trances um, that look quite alarming to humans. The Tama does do that, and, and he looks like he's dead, but really what they're doing is spreading out their wings and, and spreading out their feathers to allow the sun to get through to their skin. Um, but, yeah, I mean, how could you not want to write about a bird that engages with humans in that way? I, I was quite captivated by, by that footage. Yeah. And actually, since the book's come out, um, two people have got in touch with me on Facebook. One, um, a woman that I was at school with who I haven't seen since about fifth form. She's now living in Australia. And she says, we've got Charlie. We've got Charlie the magpie. Um, <laughs> so she's you know, sending me photos of Charlie. And then another woman who I don't know at all but, but sent me a message via Facebook saying, we had a tame magpie living with us for years and years. And then there's also um, Marty Smith, um, a writer who has Pecky Sharp the magpie, uh, I already knew Marty um, quite well, but I um, talked to her quite a bit about about Peggy. Um, Peggy modelled a sticker, which when you buy Pe the book, yes, Peggy did. You, you get a you get a Tama. Tama will sign this the book for you. Yep, yep. So, um, yep. Oh, J that's, Jiffy, that's Jiffy will also sign. There we go. Yep, Jiffy. Oh, yep. That is actual Jiffy paw print. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, Delicate little so, I did get a little bit carried away. Um, <laughs> yes, but, but humans and magpies, they, there are lots and lots of really beautiful relationships out there, so that is definitely based on fact. Yeah. Tama um, seems to still have an active sort of um, social media life because I got followed by Tama on myself on Facebook the other day. <laughs> <laughs> on Twitter? Oh, Twitter, yes. Yeah, yeah. Of course Twitter. it has to be Twitter. Yes. No, he's yeah, a bird. He's a bird. So. Um, yes, well, I realised um, after I'd finished the book that at one point I do mention Tama's Twitter handle, which is at Tama Magpie, and I thought, I wonder if some people, some readers might go looking to see if he really is on Twitter. Well, okay, he better go on Twitter then. And so, so yeah, Tama is, he's been tweeting for a few months. He's, he's quite rude sometimes. I... I'm Where quite, does that I'm, come from, Catherine? I I'm, just, I'm quite <laughs> embarrassed, really, at the, some of the things that he comes out with. He's, he's asking all these women, are you single? It's, it's quite embarrassing. Um, yeah. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say is when you talked about um, magpies having a bad rap, I remember when I was a child, my mum grew up on a farm in the Rangatiki outside Martin, and our nana used to tell us stories, hellish stories about magpies, how they would... Um, peck the eyes out of lambs at lambing times was her big, which I imagine are sort of stillborn lambs if it ever happened at all. Yeah. But, um, and so when I was a kid, I remember wandering around that farm and being worried if I saw magpies, that magpies were these sort of semi-malevolent yeah. critters, you know. No, so. they absolutely are, and they do yeah. have that reputation. And I kind of think a lot of it is law that's grown up around them. But Tama does kind of speak to those those unfounded rumours in the book. Yeah, he's, he's quite outraged, actually, that, um, that, that humans are spreading these vile rumours about him. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they do have the capacity to attack in nesting season, 
Yeah, and they will get season. very territorial. Yeah, I think everybody has stories from childhood, you know, because because like other, quite a, other animals that have sort of territorial instincts, like dogs. Dogs are way more inclined to bark at children than at adults because because they go like, I will startle this small thing, you know, and um, yeah. <laughs> and and I think magpies are the same. I mean, children are wandering more likely to be wandering in their territory, but um, they also I taste been, a lot better than adults. I haven't been swooped by. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I haven't been swooped by a magpie since I was an adult. But then in nesting season, near magpies, I walk around doing this with my jacket. Right. It's like how to avoid magpies. Or yeah. over here, over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want them. Yeah, yeah. So yes. Any, um, any more? Yeah, I, I have a question. Um, first of all, I, I want to thank you for um, explaining really well about the book because I haven't read the book and I came here not really knowing what to expect. But through the conversation, I, I learned quite a lot and I feel like I'm in the topic. Um, yeah, this uh, very interesting uh, point of view. And uh, my question is about um, your initial idea, whether there was the story that you wanted to tell about the domestic violence and then you th you thought what is the best way to tell this story? Or whether you were so fascinated about the magpies that you said, uh, that you thought that, you know, what is the story that could be told through the um, eye of a magpie? So it's the initial idea that I'm interested in. Yeah, um, I'd been thinking about what my next book would be, and I really loved using an unusual narrator in my early novel, The Wish Child, and I wanted to come up with another unexpected voice to tell the story. So I was thinking, well, could I, go, could I go non-human? Would that work? And I was thinking about various animals. I was thinking about um, the husky on YouTube that seems to howl, I love you. Um, thinking about that for a while. And then I realized that there are these magpies right outside my office window at home on the rural land behind our house. And um, they were strutting around out there. They were making themselves heard. Every morning when I got up before dawn and opened the window, I would hear them. And they seem to be saying, look, well, here we are. Look, right here, use us. Um, so that was really where the initial idea came from. Also, I'd had the title rattling around in my head for quite a long time and knew that I wanted to use it for something. And that came um, when my husband and I were visiting the tiny local museum at Tuatapere. And I saw photos of old Axman's Carnival events and thought, yep, that's the title for a novel, but I don't know what novel yet. That was probably in about 2008. Um, and the other seed was um, when we were on holiday in the Coromandel in 2016, January 2016, and we stayed in an avocado orchard overlooking Cathedral Cove. And I went walking in the orchard one night and saw this, this cage and realized that it was a magpie trap. Um, and I'm vegetarian and I hate horrible things happening to animals, so I kind of wanted to back away and not look at it. But there was this panel of writing on the top and I thought, I wonder what that says. And so I read it and it was actually quite horrible instructions about what to do to dispatch a magpie when you catch one. And that stayed with me as well. And so when I decided, oh, I'm, I, I'm writing about magpies, I think. I need to get in touch with the people who own that avocado orchard years later and, and say, what did it say on top of your cage trip? So I did that. I went back there years later, and they were very, very helpful, and I found the man who invented the cage trap and said, is it all right if I use your, your um, words in the book? And he said, yes, that's fine. So that's why a place called Trap Works is mentioned in the acknowledgements in the book. So it was really those three sources that kind of all gravitated 
towards one another in the strange, mysterious way that they do that made the book. Yeah. A series of absolutely wonderful decisions that's given us this <laughs> stunning book. I, I absolutely love this book, and I think you should all rush out and get your, get your, get your Tama sticker and <laughs> Catherine's signature on your book. And I'd like to thank Catherine very much for being here. She's, she's, she's booked up for many weekends, so her husband and daughter are going to be a bit displeased, but, but <laughs> fortunately none of them have an axe, <laughs> as far as I know. In any meaningful way, no axes are being ground. No. So... So this is her first public... It's Tama's first outing. First yeah. outing. So yeah. um, um, I wish you all the best with this, and let's say thanks. Thanks, right. Elizabeth. Thanks, thanks to everyone.